thank you for helping us to honor independent voices and all wars. WHIV is not a station, is not a radio station with a mission. It's a mission with a radio station, and we are so proud of that. And with that, I am very happy to get started with Resistance Radio right now. When machines and computers, profit motives and property rights are considered more important than people, the giant triplets of racism, extreme materialism and militarism are incapable of being conquered. George Bush doesn't care about black people. They have a Black History Month, but we don't have a White History Month. Well, all we've ever been taught is white history. If it was not for the love and respect shown to me by black women, those right-wing, ultra-conservative, alt-right haters, they would have me believe I'm too black, I'm too confrontational, I'm too tough, and I'm too disrespectful of them. But now, I know I'm simply a strong black woman. in a time where corporations are treated like people and people are treated like things. They promote legislation that attacks voting rights, the poor, LGBT citizens, the immigrant community, and civil rights that are lewd, mean-spirited, and fundamentally contrary to what our democracy is supposed to be about. What is bad is not what they are doing. What would be bad is for us not to fight back. Hey ho, let's go. This is 102.3 WHIV LP FM in New Orleans. You are listening to Resistance Radio. My name is Mark Allendary, and usually I have sitting with me the great Kenny Francis, uh, who cannot be here today uh, due to uh, uh, illness. Kenny got sick over the weekend, went to go see his doctor today, and it was recommended for him to skip out on the show. We miss you, Kenny. If you're listening, we miss you. We love you. We wish you were here. Uh, Kenny usually starts the show after I give him a couple of little uh, ribs uh, with reminding all y'all that you can find these shows. We podcast them uh, regularly, and if you go to our website at whivfm.org, and if you click on the On Demand and look for the Resistance Radio, you will find all of our shows uh, listed there uh, for you to be able to download. Those shows are then pushed out to all of the um, podcast catchers, uh, so you can find us on all of them that are that uh, work out of Apple 
or uh, the Google uh, Play uh, Store. So with that being said, uh, I just wanted to say it's a real pleasure uh, to have on air with us uh, City Council Member uh, Jay Banks. And I have a little uh, little intro I wrote, if you don't mind me doing a quick little intro sure. for you. Um, uh, Jay Banks is a native of uh, is a native New Orleanian and a lifetime District B resident. He received his bachelor's degree from Diller University in Business Administration and his master's degree in organizational management from Springfield College in Springfield, Massachusetts, and is a commissioned notary public. He's also a graduate of the Democratic National Committee Training Institute and a New Orleans Regional Leadership Institute, also known as Norley. Let's just put a pin on that. I want to come back to that because I'm a graduate as well. Okay. So I just wanted to talk about that in a moment. His community involvement... His community involvement is and has been extensive. He's currently the chairman of the board of directors of the Zulu Social Aid and Pleasure Club, a member of the New Orleans Jazz and Heritage Foundation board of directors, and in 2016 had the honor of reigning as King Zulu. I remember that, and I remember watching you go by when uh, when you were king. Awesome. Uh, on a national level, he is currently serving as, on both the Energy, Environment, and Natural Resources Committee and the Human Development Committee at the National League of Cities. He is a former board member of the New Orleans Public Facilities Management, a former commissioner of the Ernest N. Moriel New Orleans Exhibition Hall Authority, and a former member of the WWOZ Radio Board of Directors here at WHIV. We're huge fans of WWOZ. Until assuming his position on the city council, he was the director of the Dryads YMCA School of Commerce. In his private time, uh, Councilmember uh, uh, Banks is an avid reader, gardener, cook, and fantasy football fanatic and card player. With that, uh, Councilmember Banks, it's such a pleasure to have you on air. Thank you so much for appearing well, thank on you. WHIV. Thank you so much. I just wanted to say that, that Kenny Francis started this series. So I wanted to give him props of having all of the city council people come on air uh, on WHIV. And I think we've pretty much gone through about 80% of the city council members to talk to us about kind of their vision for the city of New Orleans uh, while they are sitting uh, as a tenured council person uh, on uh, on the city council of in New Orleans. So I just wanted to once say thank you again for appearing on air. Kenny, we miss you. I know that you're listening. Uh, and please feel free to text in. Uh, Kenny did have a uh, 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 has a very powerful message that I'm going to read at the end of this show that's uh, talking about and kind of responding to some of the gun violence that we saw over the weekend. So, But we'll work our way over to that in a moment. In the meanwhile, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? We usually like to have folks kind of start a bit about themselves, kind of their, their trajectory, and then uh, what ultimately brought you to a life uh, of serving the community uh, as a city council person. The, uh, the bio, you read it, which was pretty accurate, um, and the idea of service is something that was ingrained in me. And I have the honor of being the son of the first black graduate of Tulane University, the son of, that was my mother, my dad, one of the founders of the Southern Christian Leadership Conference, as a child, many of the meetings for the civil rights movement were held in our living room. And civil rights icons like Avery Alexander, A.L. Davis Jr. was my godfather. Um, when you consider the names of people here, A.P. Turo and Dutch Morial and Israel Augustine and, and Chink Henry and Freddie Warren and all those people who are these iconic civil rights heroes, man, us, it was Uncle Israel. <laughs> All right. So 
this this idea of being involved in the community is something that that I think I had in me before I knew I had it in me. I did not have any desire to ever be elected to anything. This was nothing that I thought of as a child and nothing that I aspired to. But what happened was when it became apparent that Latoya <coughs> was going to run for the mayor's office, we knew that somebody needed to run to District B. And we needed because she was <coughs> she was a District B. She was the District B council member right. and was gonna leave a vacant seat. And we knew that somebody had to run. We also knew that whoever it was had to be strong enough to be able to stand up to all of the things that are happening and be an advocate for everybody. And during that process, we got, we had the opportunity to talk to several people who were considering running and ask them the standard question about what you're going to do. And we got very, very, very interesting answers like, I'm going to balance the budget and I'm going to restore accountability and I'm going to provide leadership. And the fact of the matter is, man, what that mean? Tell me about what you're going to do. Tell me about what you're going to do to help Ms. Jones have an easier choice between paying her rent, buying her medicine, or paying her light bill. <clears throat> Tell me what you're going to do to help keep a little boo-boo, a little Ray Ray out of the justice system. Tell me what you're going to do to stop Mr. Williams from being gentrified out of his house. <clears throat> and we were asking those kind of questions, but we weren't getting answers that we were satisfied with. So finally it came down time to critical mass, and we knew we needed a candidate that was going to answer those questions in an affirmative way with some substance. And when it got down to D-Day, we knew somebody had to run. We decided, well, hey, you got to run. And I said, no, I ain't running to the corner to catch a bus, not me. But then the, the future of this community was so important that after a very short period, said, okay. And I don't think God makes mistakes. Um, we may not know the path or the destination of the path that we're on, but I do think our steps are ordered. And at the end of the day, that's how I got here. And I hope that uh, I don't think God makes mistakes. I think I was in here for that reason, to be able to stand up and to advocate for people that were getting left by the wayside. And when we talk about a vision for the district and for the city, I see New Orleans as being the gumbo that it has always been. I welcome and embrace all of the new New Orleanians. I love the fact that there is this newfound interest in coming to this magical place that we call home. And I openly welcome and embrace them, but I do not do that at the expense of the people that have been here. So I vision and hope that when I leave this journey, that we will have balanced the scale so that we welcome all the new people. But the people that have been here for generations are still allowed, permitted and encouraged to stay here because what is happening now, we've got processes in place now that are literally forcing indigenous people out. And the magic that makes New Orleans isn't the fact 
that it is at some mythical intersection of latitude and longitude that puts us two inches closer to heaven. That's not it. It's not that we got special air or even special water. It's the people here that make this place so wonderfully magical. And if the people here can't be here, then you don't have the New Orleans that we all know and love. And and for me, it's just, it, it's basic. Uh, I don't have a simple mind, but I think in simple ways. And the basis is the people here, so we got to do all we can do to ensure they have the opportunity to be here and not just be here, to thrive and to live successfully and to make a way for their children so that the next generation has that same opportunity. And, I mean, it's very simple to me, man. I mean, that that's it. So I... um. I was going to save that to the the last question, but you just basically jumped to the last question on my list. So I guess let's just make that the really first question. Then what do you want your legacy to be? Because I think that you may have just defined it right there. And I obviously don't want to put words in your mouth, but that was so eloquently spoken that is that what you see as, as your legacy as being a city council person? Pure uh, and simple. I mean, that's it. I mean, we've got to have one New Orleans and that one New Orleans includes all of us new and old alike, and that is what I'm hoping to attain in this period that we have all of us still here, all of us still thriving, a city that we all can be in, and that's what I'm hoping to achieve when I, and and I have no idea how long this journey is, man, look, I didn't know this journey was starting, (laughs) so I can't tell you where it's going to end, because I didn't ask for it to start, but but wherever it is and however it ends, um, I'm hoping that whenever it ends, that I have made a difference and a positive way to that end. So then that opens the door to a lot of complex, uh, complicated and nuanced, uh, I think, uh, conversation and questions. So I guess we'll just start with that. So the New Orleans that you're describing today, we talk a lot about here on WHIV. Um, the, the reason why I started the radio station was really to have these sorts of conversations in kind of these long format, uh, these long form interviews was to give folks like yourselves an opportunity to not be clipped out into like 20 second sound bites, but to really kind of give yourself to really speak, you know, to these, cause these are complicated issues and yes. you add, uh, issues of class and then race on top of that. Th- these are not things that could be unpacked in a minute or two. And That's right. so, uh, and so I appreciate again, you being here I, uh, before I jump in it. I just also want to say that I was normally class of 2014 and what, what made us, uh, unique was, uh, I, I started to realize that people talked about their class being the best class. Uh, and I imagine that your class probably was the best class. I'd like to think of our class as being the most popular class. And well, so, I will, I will, I will concede that. Uh, we had some very good people in 2005. We were in the class before Katrina. Oh boy. So, I mean, we finished before the storm, right. but, uh, we were in the 2005 class. And just for those that don't know, Norley, it's an amazing organization and it really trains leaders. Um, and again, Councilperson Banks was in 2005 class. I was in the 2014 class and I still keep in touch with my classmates pretty regularly. Mm-hmm. So, and, and I think Norley does a really nice job. It's, you know, it did in 2014, I'm sure in 2005, in which it talked about these issues that I think that we're going to jump into, uh, now. And it does it in a very, in a way that is a smart, uh, sophisticated and more than anything else nuanced because because a lot of these issues are, are nuanced. So I guess taking a big step back, as we are starting to see the city change, we use a very, uh, uh, it's, a, it's a term that we use here. We, I, we refer to it as the disnification of New Orleans. I'm sure that's probably something that you've heard. Um, but what, what do you think is causing that, that change, that, this gentrification? What are the various elements there 
Um, and then what are the steps there that we could do or that you can do using your position, your wisdom, and your authority to start to kind of reverse some of those steps? The number one cause of this that's happening now is the economics. And you've got a class of haves and a class of have-nots. And the people that have been here are stuck in low-paying, menial-wage jobs. And the people that are coming in are coming in with um, far higher educational levels. And they are taking advantage of the new tech jobs, the new medical jobs, and the fact that New Orleans tends to be a dollar tree. When you look at what is around the country in terms of cost of real estate, you can get a very, very, very nice house here for what people pay for closets in other places. And at the end of the day, um, I think that those two factors have combined. People have come here because of the magic of this city. They see that it is extremely affordable compared to where they are. Man, you go out to Los Angeles, 1.2 million there barely gets you a bathroom. Here, you got a mansion, all right? And it's the same American dollar that's here. So when that person comes here to invest, boom, you've spent your money, you've got this palace for very little, and then you go into the neighborhoods. You can get 10 houses or could get 10 houses for that same money. And what happens when you get them? You go Airbnb them so those folks that were there, they no longer can be there, but you're making plenty of money on your Airbnb. So at the end of the day, it's purely the economics. And and what I hope to be able to do is to level that economic scale as much as possible. Now, we have been pressing to increase the minimum wage. I mean, I'm not a... a, 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 a <laughs> many of the tourism entities don't consider me their favorite son because I've been pressing to increase the minimum wage. I think we have to do that. The fact is, is that We've got to have everybody here making enough money to be able to successfully live. The disparity study came out a few weeks ago, and it is embarrassing. $22 approximately to have a menial life, and we got folks here working two jobs making $13, $14 an hour. You're working to stay poor. Something wrong with that, and we've got to change that. So um, I'm hoping that the kinds of things that we're pressing for will help to level that. Now, we've had some successes, but nowhere near enough. I ain't Look, man, I ain't spiking the ball. Matter of fact, I'm not even trying to. We're still in the first quarter. But we have made some progress. I'm really excited that, that, that we've had some progress on getting accessible health care for hospitality workers, which was something that was woefully missing. When you got people working at a job where uh, they're working for tips, you don't go to work. You don't get paid. On the other hand, if you're sick, you ain't got insurance, where do you go? Well, there was nowhere. And I want to thank the Tourism Commission for stepping up and helping us coordinate that. So now we've got access to health care for hospitality workers that we didn't have. Now, that's a win, and I think it's a significant win, but it's one of a whole thousand more that we got to get. But I think we're progressing towards that. We are going to level the scale as much as it can be leveled to make this community available, accessible, and livable for all of us. So I would imagine that you supported Representative DuPlessis' uh, bill 
to uh, raise the minimum wage. One thousand percent. Yes. And 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 what happened in the the the, the House, or I guess it went to the um, the the Committee on Labor. I think is where it went, and it was predictably sent there to quote unquote. And, I, and, and if you're listening, Representative Duplessis, I, I apologize to use the word, but it was sent there to quote unquote die, and th- that was just. It you was, know, it, it's unfortunate that there is this culture in Louisiana that has this screw New Orleans mentality. <laughs> we and, talk about that regularly on WHIB. I mean, you know, if, if you ask anybody anywhere, name a city in Louisiana, they ain't but one. <laughs> Right. And I'm not taking anything away from Shreveport or Baton Rouge or Bunky or Chitlin Switch or Bulk Tussle anywhere else. But the fact of the matter is New Orleans is it. We drive the train, but we're treated very, very, very badly. And I got I got beat up for saying something facetiously that really maybe wasn't. I mean, I kind of wish we could succeed and be like a, a territory, be like Puerto Rico or the Virgin Islands where – we control our own revenue and our own destiny. I think we send more out than we take in. And that might not be such a bad way because, again, we don't get a fair shake. Now, the mayor, you got to give her her props, man. I was, I was actually going to drive the and conversation to this, so please I'm going to tell you, man, you, everybody in New Orleans should be high-fiving every time they see her because yeah, that right. fair share was a phenomenal achievement that's been kicked down the road repeatedly. No other mayor was successful in doing Many of them wouldn't even try but she was dogging in her in her concern and her commitment to make it happen, and it has happened. We have been supporting the state through the casino stuff for decades, for as long as the casino's been here, and not getting anything for it. And getting the, the, the tourism industry, not just the casino, the whole tourism industry, they use our services. They are part of the process. If a tourist gets sick, they're going to call the city services. They ride on our streets. They use our plumbing infrastructure. They use our drainage infrastructure. I think, as the mayor says, if the toilets don't flush in New Orleans, the cash registers don't ring in The cash registers ain't going to ring, man. And the fact that we had to go to war to make that happen, I mean, it's, it's kind of actually ridiculous. But I'm so glad we got this mayor that we got that was able to drive that train and get it done. Now, again, it's not worth spiking the ball yet. We ain't there yet. Because there's still a lot more that needs to come back here that's not here, but that's a start. And the fact that we had to go to war to make that happen, it gives you the idea of that the state can take all it's want, but doesn't have to give much back. And I appreciate the fact that the Dome's here. Great the fact that the convention center's here. But the money that's generated by them doesn't stay here. So we got the, the visual of it, but the rewards of it doesn't stick around. And that's something that... that, that I'm glad we were able to get a little bit better bite of the apple with that, but we need more. So as I usually explain, so what, what represents, so if you're tuned in, you are listening to Resistance Radio. My name is Mark Allendary. Kenny Francis uh, was ill and was unable to, uh, to come to work t- or come to, uh, 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 well, he didn't go to work today either, but uh, he wasn't able to do the show today, and, uh, and we're miss- we miss him greatly. Um, we're uh, talking with a representative, uh, I'm sorry, with uh, Councilmember Jay Banks, who is the representative of District B, which is my district uh, as well. And what we're talking about right now 
is uh, the mayor's fair share campaign. And uh, Kenny and I have talked about the fair share campaign and the uh, taxes and the tax abatement that has happened in the city of New Orleans. At, we, we'd like to think that we've made taxes sexy again uh, because nobody it's so complicated and so convoluted. But I've been able to kind of summarize it like this. New York City, uh, <coughs> New York City is able to recoup 100% of their tax tourism dollars. San Francisco is able to recoup 75% of their tourism tax dollars. New Orleans recoups 10% of their tax. Isn't that ridiculous? It, and, and when you look back to see when that actually started, it shouldn't be shocking that it started uh, when Dutch Moriel first became mayor. And so there, there are these levels of, um, and it's hard to deny racial elements uh, there uh, as well. And what ultimately happened is that monies were being, and very complicated and very subtle and very, very hard to explain. And when you have somebody, um, and I forget the name of the entity that, that, that looks at this, um, uh, when you read their reports, they even say this is incredibly confusing and it's hard to follow the dollars. And I know that the mayor came into office and was uh, able to sit down and, and kind of collect her team such that they were able to trace through where all these tax monies were going and were able to explain it. And then she went to, uh, of course, the state uh, this year. And I think that she was able to recoup, I think, 200 million dollars do i have that number right or the not look man the fact that she got two cents back <laughs> she did way more than anybody else has ever done but the in fact her first is year. in her first year <laughs> the fact of the matter is it is complicated it is convoluted but the reality of it was you don't have to trace it far because you weren't tracing it back here and it is a truly unfortunate circumstance for everybody here trying to run this city and provide resources for the people that live here that money is being generated. People beat us up all the time about where's all the money. Well, it ain't here. It doesn't get to stay here. And there are thousands of people here right now. There are thousands of people here every day. There are a total of millions throughout the year that are paying for services that they don't get. Because what happens is those tax dollars don't stay here in the city. They don't get to the city to be able to use as the city sees fit. They go to all these other different taxing structures, all these other entities, and the services that we need to provide, we don't have the opportunity to provide. And it, it, it is truly a frustrating thing. So, so it doesn't matter what the actual number is. We know that it ain't what it ought to be. This morning I uh, dropped my car to be serviced in Metairie and I got a, a shuttle uh, back uh, back to New Orleans to drop me off at my clinic. And as we were driving me back on the interstate, I, I asked the driver, I said, I'm going to be speaking to Councilperson uh, Banks a little bit later on this evening. Uh, if you had one question, what, what would you ask him? And without missing a beat, that was the first thing he said. He said, where are my tax dollars going? I feel like I pay more and more taxes, but I feel like we get less and less services. And it's unfortunate, but uh, at the end of the day, um, we don't get all we're supposed to get. And, uh, I mean, we got to play the cards that we're dealt. I'd love to be able to restructure that. Um, but that, that, that is an unfortunate reality. But don't you think moving forward we do have this opportunity? I mean, as you as a city council person supporting the mayor who is clearly trying to restructure that. So oh, without a doubt. I mean, the, the path to restructuring, the path to trying to get New Orleanians a fair shake is underway. Now, can I guarantee you on my mother's life that we're going to be able to get this done? I don't know. 
But at the end of the day, though, we're going to keep pressing for it because it needs to happen. I'm a big believer, as you, I've heard you say several, and I've heard you in several speeches kind of use very similar kind of analogies. Um, So I have one that I use, which is path of 100 miles starts with the first step, and I really do believe that. Who knows what's going to happen at the end of the step, and I think it's more meaningful to walk into that path with that, with that, and notion. we accept the responsibility, and we are moving to that end. Now, where we're we going to end up, we'll know when we get there. Absolutely, but at least we are not naive enough or or complacent enough to not even try. Yes, and that's the difference. And I think that that's how people are truly remembered: is the the effort that they put into something as important uh, as what we're talking about here, mm-hmm. which is the quality of life. And and so taking a step back, when you look back at the quality of life of New Orleanians, like you say, we're seeing people kind of we're seeing you know quite frankly neighborhoods are being decimated. Neighborhoods uh, are being decimated. Look, man, we we for generations have had the cart in front of the horse. We have been wholly focused on making sure that New Orleans was a fabulous place for tourists to visit at the expense of local residents. I think we got to restructure that. I think we got to make New Orleans a fabulous place to live, and then the tourists will get the residual benefits. That's been a big part of the problem. Now, this whole thing with, with, with our neighborhoods being turned into hotel districts, that's a real concern. On the other hand, there are some economics for local residents that play. The one, the the major industry here is tourism. Make no doubt about that. But there are not very many players in the tourism business. Very few people make all those monies that come in here. So allowing little people to benefit by having a a a side of their double or a room in their house rented out, I don't think that's a big problem. The problem comes in when we've got whole neighborhoods being decimated by landlords that have just come up and bought all of the housing stock and turned it into hotel districts. That's where the problem is because the people that were living there before can't live there. And then that in turn drives up the property taxes, not only for the, for the people that are renting the houses that are still there, but for those property owners that still live there, everybody's taxes going up because now you got these commercial properties right next door in the next block or whatever it is. And the way the assessments are done they're done not on individual properties, but on neighborhoods, which is another thing that I think we really got untied. Now, there's a resolution coming forth at the next council meeting. Yes, I was going to ask about that. Asking that, 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 that the legislature and that the New Orleans delegation please work to that end. Untie us. Change the law to allow the Orleans Parish Assessor to assess individual houses. It is patently wrong that somebody who's moved into a neighborhood where the houses were $50,000 or even up in central city, $30,000 before the storm. Now those houses are half a million dollars, but the people that were there before the storm, their incomes didn't rise to that level. Now they expected to pay taxes on a half a million dollar house and they ain't drove a nail, painted a wall or planted a blade of grass. And now you're going to say that theirs is worth this, worth this how value is only realized when you capture it. Don't I could tell you that that phone you just touched is worth a million dollars. But if you ain't got a million dollars for it, then what is it worth? It ain't worth a million dollars if you ain't got it for it. Now, if you get a million dollars for it, then you ought to be held accountable for that. You ought to pay taxes on the million that you receive. But I shouldn't be able to tax you not a million dollars on the telephone that you ain't got a million dollars in your pocket to show. And the way we're doing this is patently wrong. And I'd like to see that change yesterday. Are there uh 
is is this considered a, a best practice around the uh, other cities around the country? Are we seeing the way that ho- uh, homes are being assessed are being kind of uh, unmarried, if you will, from their their neighbors' houses? I know or? Philadelphia did a piece like this, and uh, I don't know of, of very many other places, but we don't have to follow anybody on this. We can take the lead on this. Absolutely. Of course, of course, of course. I was just wondering. No, we we can be in the front of this one. Of course, of course. And and this is the right, fair thing to do. Only assess the value when you capture the value. And then the the assessment also happens for four years, too. Is there any considerations to to make it an annual thing as well so this way people I don't know if 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 logistically or physically the assessor could assess everything annually okay, I mean it's it. a lot that of properties sense, so I'm not sir. sure if that could happen but the fact of the matter is man we got to have a system that does not burden people and penalize people for somebody else's success right now because I'm poor I'm expected to pay what you pay and you're rich well I didn't do anything to affect you but how do you come in and do something to affect me and not only affect me, affect me adversely. Because if I can't pay the taxes, then you're going to expropriate my house. So you're going to bribe me out of my house and use government taxes as the gun. Man, that is patently wrong. Senator J.P. Morrell, State Senator J.P. Morrell, uh, was able to pass a bill, I think this last year, in which he And it was- phases in those astronomical increases, and that is a help. But that is not the answer. That is a part of the answer. I appreciate them slowing the roll. But we need to untie this all together. You don't need to slowly stick the knife in because even in four years, my income still will not have risen that I can pay four times what I was paying. It still ain't going to be there. We need to untie it so that you assess the value once you capture the value. If my house was $40,000 before and I ain't done nothing to it, it still ought to be $40,000. Now, if I sell it, and I happen to sell it for 400000 then whoever has bought it for 400000 they have accepted that $400,000 value. They should pay the taxes on the 400000 not me. I didn't sell it. I'm still operating on the 40000 We should not penalize people on the front side when they didn't do anything. Take the value out. If you go take out a Quicken loan on that, if that $40,000 house is now worth 400000 and you go get a $250,000 Quicken loan, then the tax it for the 250000 Once you take the value out, then you've acknowledged the fact that that's what it's worth. Tax me on what I've accepted the value for. If I paid for it, for it, yeah, that's what it was worth. And in, in doing so, do you think that there, that there will be, uh, obviously there's going to be a decrease in, in the budget uh, that is um, taking money in on, on, on property taxes. Would that be made up somewhere it, else? Well, it's two things on that. Right now, you got a whole lot of people that aren't paying this exorbitant rate that's, anyway. That's actually a good point. Okay, <laughs> right. so it's not that you're going to do a a drastic cut off because sure. right now you got people that can't pay it. Sure. So if you make it that they can manage what they're due, then you might even increase the sources coming in, as opposed to right now I give you a five thousand dollar tax bill, and you working at eight dollars an hour, I might as well give you five million dollar tax bill. How you going to pay it? Right. Right. All right. So, no, it's not getting paid to start. 
Which of course then makes it difficult. I mean, we saw a lot of that in the in the lower ninth uh, as across well. the board. Right? right, we see a lot of that, especially after Katrina. So then that. So let me just do a quick space station ID. If you're tuned in, you are listening to one hundred two point three WHIV. This is Resistance Radio. My name is Mark Allenberry. Today I'm flying solo, as Kenny Francis uh, was feeling ill today uh, and unable to make it. It's really an honor and a pleasure to have uh, Council Member Jay Banks, who is the Council Person for district B on air. So if we take a big step back and where we started this 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 conversation here is that a large part of this that we're seeing is as a result of the short-term rentals. I know that there's a uh, uh, some votes or there's votes that are coming up the, I think next week. But your position on just short-term rentals and again this is I know it's nuanced and you have you, you have open time here to talk about it. I know these are complicated issues. So short-term rentals are a very complicated, nuanced problem. Now, if you've got a short-term rental, you don't see any problem. If you got it, it is the greatest thing since pockets. On the other hand, if you were displaced from the house that your family had been renting in for generations, you got a for real problem. If you happen to live in a neighborhood where your property taxes has gone up because of the value of the short-term rental, because it's making a whole lot more money than what it was, you got a real problem. If you happen to be a neighbor who has to put up with the inconvenience of having drunken frat boys come in for bachelor parties and party till 5 o'clock in the morning and trash the outside of your house with beer bottles and, 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 and trash, then you got a real problem. So depending on where you are on the spectrum, short-term rentals can be the panacea to all your problems. On the other hand, it's the worst thing ever. Now, my job as a councilman is to embrace all of those positions and try to make the best way possible. Now, the difficulty that this council has is that the previous council pretty much so punted. The thing was enacted with nothing. So now we're trying to repair this airplane while it's flying 30,000 feet in the air, and it's a difficult, difficult task. Now, what I'm expecting in the end, everybody going to be mad. But that's because we're going to have a good law at the end. There is going to be compromise across the board because we're trying to make all the pieces fit. So nobody's going to get everything they want. We cannot outlaw it. That's one spectrum. If you outlaw it, you're going to send it underground the same way that their drugs are outlawed. But you got dope dealers everywhere. So if we outlaw it, you will have short term rentals everywhere. They'll just be underground. Then on the other hand, if we let it wide open, which is what some people want, then we're going to lose the quality of life for thousands of residents throughout this city that they won't be living here anymore. So you can't go that. There is a middle ground somewhere, though. So at some point, through all of these different manifestations of, of laws, I was in a meeting this morning uh, trying to work out some more of these nuances to try to get a workable piece. So I think that really by the time we get the final in, everybody going to be mad. You know, Which is going to be a good thing. Right. My my wife, who's a policy person, will oftentimes say that she she knows she hit on a good policy uh, when uh, everybody is uh, is mad uh, at, at all the stakes. Uh, Kenny had uh, had written in and asked me to ask you a question here. So he says, what is what is your position on how to adjudicate commercial units and permits? And do you support implementing a one to one match that would qu- require developers to create an equal amount of affordable housing units for every commercial short term rental unit and uh, a unit that they develop? I have been very much so involved in those discussions. And yes. And then no. 
we literally met with the developer this morning that 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 was showing us his assertion that on paper the one to one is not going to work in terms of the economics. He may or may not be right. I literally had that meeting this morning. Now, do I think that we ought to use these lemons of short-term rental to make lemonade? Absolutely. Do I support the fact that we ought to have some reciprocation from the developers that can help us fund affordable housing? Yes. Now, whether it's going to end up being one-to-one or six-for-one or whatever it's going to be, it's going to be something, but I can't commit to -to one-to-one because, again, we got to make the thing work. I don't want to put something in that's not going to benefit it makes no sense to have this fabulous law that says you can have one-to-one and then nobody build any. We haven't helped ourselves. So if the sweet spot is six-to-one or whatever it is and we still get the one out of it, we've got more than what we got, we cannot put this short-term rental genie back in the bottle. It's done. We cannot undo this. This is going to be with us. The fact of the matter is we got to make the best out of it as we can and getting some, some resources to create the affordable housing is the best way to do that. You you mentioned, uh, and I and I meant to follow up with you at the moment uh, that you are working at the state level to try to. And I'm going back to the assessor uh, point because I think that's such a great point and how to shift that burden uh, of of tax onto the person who's paying for the higher prices. I think that a large that to a large part is treating a symptom. If I can look at it from a medical perspective, but sometimes treating a symptom is necessary in the overall. We'd like to treat the problem but you know and obviously you're treating the problem but going back to treating the symptom um what is that like i mean if you kind of you know is the state open to this is that something that would just be in the city of new orleans uh what does that timeline look like well it it can't happen without the legislative session and hopefully we will get a bill enacted at least get a bill introduced and hopefully passed during the next session, and then it would have to go to a vote of the state. It's a long and arduous process. But the bottom line is that we at least got to try. And I don't know whether it can happen or not, being that we've got to get it through the legislature, which, just like you talked about before, has a screw New Orleans mentality. Now, I don't want to do anything that's going to affect Calcasieu or, or Tangibaho or Washington or Livingston or Beauregard or any of those other parishes. The other 63 they can do whatever they want to do. I'm not asking them to change their process. We would be asking permission to change ours. And if you don't want us to, again, nobody's asking you to do anything different. I personally don't see why anybody would have a problem with this. We are asking just to be able to do this in Orleans Parish. And whatever you do in Bug Tussle or Chitlin Switch or Hooterville or wherever it's at, you continue to do that. But give us the freedom to do what we need to do here. No other city in this state has the issue with gentrification that Orleans has. So allow us to do what we need to do to make us survive. And again, it's not at your expense. What do you care? It ain't affecting you at all. Yeah, I don't understand why. Why does that need to go to the state for a vote? I I would feel very uncomfortable voting for something for Calcasieu Parish. I would actually probably skip it on the ballot because I would say I'm not But that's the way the state constitution is constructed and in order to get the taxes changed, the whole structure, yeah, you've got to have a constitutional amendment to do it. So it's got to go to the state. Constitutional amendment. (laughs) My goodness. it it rained very heavy this weekend, or it didn't rain heavy. It actually it rained. I think what I think the mayor said two point four inches in in forty five minutes. 
Um, we saw a band that came before, uh, and, we, and we had a flood. Um, we saw a band that came before Barry, uh, in which I think uh, three nine inches in three hours mm-hmm. on that Wednesday, which of course frightened everybody. To uh, I was there on uh, on Thursday at Home Depot and at Rouse's, and the shelves were empty and people were leaving. Um, and so as we shift the conversation to sewage and water board, I know that there's a lot uh, a lot there, and so I was just wondering what your thoughts and considerations and plans were for the future. Every time uh, Kenny lives in the Lower Garden District and he. He wrote uh, here uh, that every time it rains, it floods. And, you know, obviously we're now, and as the mayor says, it's now our new norm. And we're starting to see that living with water is becoming our uh, our daily, uh, or at least our, our life now here in New Orleans. And just looking for comment on that. Well, the new norm is real. But what the public can take comfort in, the sewage and water board is operating better than it has operated in generations. Period. For the first time in my knowledge, and I was in city government all the way back in the mid-80s, you've got DPW, Sewage and Water Board, and Entergy, the three players involved in making sure that the system works, all sitting at the same table. Now, prior to now, all of these three entities were in their different silos. But the reality of it is is that not one customer of Sewage and Water Board is not a taxpayer supports DPW and is not a customer of Anthony New Orleans. It's all the same people. So the fact that you had all of these silos was truly dysfunctional. It was no us and them. It's all us. Now, the other side of that is that the public doesn't care who's responsible as long as it happens. So since we're all answerable to the same people and the public doesn't care, we got to get past this territorialism, which is what we've moved to do. So for the first time, Everybody's sitting at the same table. Now, I realize that that's no comfort for the people that had standing water. But the fact that the system is working as best as it can and as best as it has in generations means something. The variable is whether you are Republican or Democrat, whether you support the president or not, whether you believe him or don't believe him. The fact of the matter is global warming is real. Climate change is happening. 90 degrees in Anchorage, Alaska. A hurricane starting in Georgia. Man, look, hurricanes start in the Atlantic Ocean off the Africa coast. They come across the Atlantic. They go into the Caribbean. Then they get into the Gulf. And then we got to be concerned. Barry started in Georgia. Came south and then came back. We are in the midst of a weather change that is man-made. And it is the new norm. These once in a hundred year storms that's happening every other week. There has to be something different happening now. It's inconvenient, but the reality of it is it is going to be our new norm. And we've got to acknowledge that that no system, none on the planet. There is no technology that exists that can move nine inches of water in three hours. It ain't going to happen. There's no such technology. Now, water is a mass that you can't manipulate. It's not like air that you can compress. There's a finite amount of water that can get into the drain lines. There's a finite amount of water that the pumps can pump. There's a finite amount of water that can get into the canals. If you pump more water than the canals can hold, the water's just going to overflow the top, and then you've got an endless circular cycle 
of water going in. The fact of the matter, man, we had more water than could be managed. And it's truly unfortunate, but that seems to be the norm. Don't take my word for it. Go back and check. We had the May 78 flood. We didn't have another one like that until sometime in the 80s. How did we have three 100-year storms within a year? Obviously, something is happening. The wildfires, the blizzards. New York City was flooded two weeks ago. There is a climate change happening, and we happen to be where we are, but it's not the sewage and water board that's causing the flooding. The flooding is happening because you're getting way more water than any system can handle. Now, I'm by no means making excuses for the sewage and water board. The sewage and water board has a terrible reputation that was well-deserved. But the part you got to add into the mix now is that we're working to fix that. Now, I realize that it ain't going to happen tomorrow. Nobody's ready to say the sewage and water board is pristine now, but we're on the road to getting there. Much of what has happened in the past was hidden lied about, manipulated, all this kind of stuff. No longer is that happening. This current administration, the current leadership at the Sewage and Water Board is telling you exactly what it is. We aren't hiding anything. And the fact of the matter is you've got more electrical power being generated. You've got more of the pumps that are online. You've got regular maintenance happening. You've got things happening now that haven't happened. The catch basin cleaning. That's a big part of it too. Now, I started that catch basin. Yeah, I was cha- going to say, I think you actually started that. The, you had the second annual catch basin challenge. The catch basin challenge. Month. But look, man, got beat up with that. With people saying they shouldn't have to do that. Well, maybe you shouldn't. And nobody's asking anybody to take that 80-pound, 100-pound grate off the top of the sewer and get out there with a shovel right. and dig it out if it's all packed with gook. No. The idea of the catch basin cleaning, if there's trash, if there's leaves, if there's debris in front of it, that's going to impede the floor water, just sweep that up. Right. You don't need anything but a bag and a broom. And, and, a, it, and a conscious. And a to, conscious. To do something for your community. Because, again, the water doesn't care. <laughs> right. <laughs> and if the water can't get into the drain, that increases the likelihood of it getting into your house or your car. Right. All right? So at the end of the day, you've got a system that is being addressed that has been woefully neglected. You've had more catch basins clean in the last few months than you've had in the last several years. So we're working on getting the system to its optimum level. No, granted, we ain't there yet. But even if you were at optimum, if every single catch basin was as clean as a whistle, eight inches of water in a three-hour period ain't going to get out of here fast. Period. Hence flooding. Hence flooding. So you mentioned uh, that this was I, one. I would like to say that we usually start conversations here at WHIV, not that climate change, but I like to say that climate changed, and well, we are living in the now new, cli- the new era, the new norm of climate change mm-hmm. because that's where we're at. So shifting over to energy before we we wrap up, then because when we look at the peaking uh, 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 plant that's that is being uh, that looks to, like it's going to be built in New Orleans East um, when you look at the National Democratic Party the National Democratic Party has a platform that looks at renewable energies and is weaning ourselves off of fossil uh, fuels uh, uh, and when you look specifically at, 
at kind of to your verbiage, which was that this was man-made, that we're seeing climate change as, as a result of a, uh, of a human-made, uh, the fact that we're releasing more carbon into uh, the environment. How do we square that circle of, of creating a plant out in the east that's just going to continue the process that we're in right now? It's very simple. You use the term wean. Wean means slowly step down. The fact of the matter is, if you stop that plant today, where is your solar? You still got to build it. The fact of the matter is, nobody is ignoring the fact that we need to be moving towards renewables, and we are. But in the interim, what do you do in the meantime? But, now, but no, the plant isn't built. The plant is not built. The plant is being built because we have to have a reliable source right now. The technology is not there to give us what that plant is going to give us in solar today. It's not there. Now, can it get there one day? Yeah. Hey, look, man, I need a new car. But the only thing I can do at this point is to get new tires. Well, I got two choices. I could say, well, look, I ain't going to buy the new tires because I'm going to just wait for the whole new car. And then I can't get to work. On the other hand, I can buy the new tires, be able to get to work and be working towards buying that new car, which is what we're doing. That plant in the east is not the answer to everything. No. But is it necessary? Yes. And much of that that argument against it was done, I think, very maliciously, very unfairly and in a hateful way, because all of those people that were out here spreading all those health concerns that were not real. man, that was wrong. And the reality of it is the plant's been out there forever anyway. It's not a new plant. It's an upgrade of old technology, which is going to make it far more not only efficient, but climate friendly. And it's necessary. Now, is it the answer for 100 years from now? Probably not. But we need to be running on parallel tracks. We can't cut off the reality. We got to have power right now. We got to be working to that end right now. Or if we don't do that, the same way that the sewage and water board was woefully neglected for generations, if we do that to the electrical system, we're going to be flooded and dark. And that just doesn't make sense. Now, I am fully committed to doing everything that we can do to increase solar, wind, even talking about water. Turbines at the bottom of the river. I was in a discussion with that a couple of weeks ago. However we can get to the point of having renewables, I'm there. Look, man, my mama's still here. I got grandchildren that I want to grow up. I got a lot of responsibility, and I want those people to have as quality of life as they have, as they can have. So I get it. But I also got to be realistic. You ain't going to have a solar plant built today. You won't have one up and running as fast as you're going to have that reliability out there in the east. And it's just you, you got to be real. Now, the sexy thing to do is to say, oh, no, we ain't going to do this. And yeah, rah, rah, rah. We're going to do all this energy efficiency, all this green stuff. Yeah, that sounds real good until the lights go out. And then what? So I get it. Look, man, governing is not easy. Sure. You have to make hard choices. Yes, you do. And at some time, somebody's going to be mad and I get that. But this is not about being what's populist by trying to do what's right. And the fact of the matter is, I'm sorry that people were given bad information. I'm sorry that people were, were led to believe for very, very, very selfish reasons that there was some danger out there. That new plant is the most modern technology there is. Far more energy efficient, far less detrimental to the environment than what was already out there. And if you ask those people that were complaining, they didn't even know the plant was there to start. And it's not like it's a new plant. This is an upgrade of what's there. So 
Um, and, and I am committed and I'm telling you, we're going to be working towards getting as much renewables as we can get, but we still got to have lights in the meantime. Thank you so much for that comment. Um, I want to shift over now. Kenny Francis sent me a, uh, a comment. He sent a, a, a paragraph or two uh, responding to uh, the attacks. And if you, when we're done, if you would like to say something uh, about the attacks this weekend, certainly you're welcome to. I just want to be very clear that this, uh, this statement is written in Kenny's voice. And, uh, and I just want to be clear that Kenny Francis did uh, write what I'm about to read uh, right now. Um, so here we go. So the past weekend, we watched as several communities were devastated by acts of savage violence. These were acts of terrorism, a word that I use intentionally as these attacks were the very definition of the word. They are intended to strike fear in the hearts of our fellow citizens and inspire others to radicalize and follow suit. Listen to those words. You might think I'm talking about Al-Qaeda, ISIS, Al-Shabaab, or any number of other boogeyman that we've been told to fear. We have fought decades of war in the Middle East and other areas, supposedly to eradicate, quote-unquote, extremist ideology. That is a dire and ever-eminent threat to the safety of our nation and democracy. In reality, we created a clash of civilizations, or an us-versus-them narrative, to justify what we're really doing, and that's imperialism. Meanwhile, here at home, we have not only ignored but fostered the true threat to our nation and our democracy, white supremacy. To be unequivocally clear, these attacks were not caused by mental illness, video games, or other red herring excuses given by our Republican legislators. They were caused by white supremacy and aided and abetted by our lawmakers' subservience to the NRA. As we search for answers, I beg us all to avoid two fallacies. Donald Trump is the cause of this problem, and two, gun control legislation will alone solve this problem. Donald Trump has been the gasoline to this fire that threatens to consume us all, but it is a severe mistake to think that simply getting rid of him will rid us of this problem. It is also a severe mistake to think that the violence will end when we enact gun control. Gun control is an, is an absolute necessary step that should have been taken years ago, but even if we pass comprehensive gun control, that violence will continue. It will continue because white supremacy and the violence it begets is so entrenched into the very foundation of this country that our founding fathers duplicitly promised liberty and justice for all while treating entire races of people as subhuman. White supremacy is far from a new threat. In fact, it is our original sin. We used white supremacist ideology to institute slavery and built this country and its wealth on the backs of slave labor. It caused the Civil War, gave us Jim Crow segregation, lynchings, and the Ku Klux Klan, the Southern Strategy, Reaganomics, the crack 80s, mass incarceration, and now the seemingly never-ending gun violence perpetrated on black and brown communities by police and white supremacists. It is the single largest cause of death and devastation in our country by all external threats that we've ever faced combined. And the worst part is that we could barely even name it for what it is. The violence won't end only when we collectively decide to eradicate white supremacy, root and stem for our society, and dismantle the oppressive systems that uphold it. Only then can we hope to rebuild our nation in the image of one that finally lives up to the false promises of our founders. Only then will we truly be able to move forward. Lately, watching current events unfold, I've been consistently reminded of a quote by James Baldwin, and it resonates just as intensely today as it did 57 years ago, and that is, quote-unquote, do I really want to be integrated into a burning house? 
as a black man, I've had an innate pessimism that this country has even close to the fortitude to make this happen. You'll have to excuse me if I take a rather dim view of the prospects for the future of this nation. But I ask you, what evidence do I have or any person of color have otherwise? If you're a white person reading this or listening to this, ask yourself, what am I doing every day to eradicate white supremacy? The answer is in your heart. Is The, the answer in your heart is what the rest of us see in your eyes every day. And that was, again, written by Kenny Francis, my co-host for Resistance Radio. And Kenny, thank you so much for sending that. And it was a very powerful piece. Uh, Council Member Banks, I know that we have just uh, about a minute and a half. Any thoughts about the this weekend or what we just read? It is. I think that some of the points that he made in there are very accurate. Donald Trump did not cause hatred and bigotry. It didn't start with him. Now, it's fully acknowledged that he has legitimized it. He has made it okay. Now, hatred and bigotry has been here for a long time, but he has validated it. the diminishing of human value, calling people the names that he calls them, the total, total, total devaluation of human life has made all of this stuff acceptable. And I don't give him a pass. Even though he did not start it, he is pouring gasoline in a room full of guys striking matches, and he cannot stand up and say, oops, oh, it blew up. It shouldn't have. No, tone down the rhetoric. But, you know, I blame more than him. I blame the people around him, the supposed other voices. Where is Congressman Scalise? Where is Senator Kennedy? Where is Senator Cassidy? When is somebody, the adults on the Republican side of the room, going to stand up and say, wait a minute, Mr. President, you're going too far? When is somebody on that side going to say, hold up? Now, the reality of it is, is that the enemies of America will never destroy America from outside. We have far too many weapons to allow that to happen, but America can implode from inside. And you are not going to make me believe that Putin is not somewhere cracking champagne Every time one of these mass killings happen, because it's what they intended 